but we have several different kinds of pine trees here, ponderosa pine, white pine, sugar pine. Um, I just got to the end of my expertise on pine. We have white wood that is grand fir, white fir, lodgepole pine. There, I thought of another pine. Pine we, saw. Pine saw. Pine saw is a big commodity. Um, Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I got my dad here, the Essential Craftsman. How are you doing? Hi, guys. Doing good. We're going to be talking about logging, forestry, timber, lumber. We are in the, at least what at one time would have been considered the timber capital of the world. Is that right? The Roseburg's motto was timber capital of the nation. Was that a model, or sorry, a motto that was like, printed places and kind of generally known yeah it was on the lo city logo it was on the the sign at the entrance to the town it was huh. we were proud of it some portion of that was because of roseburg lumber which was the the company who <laughs> was also the big dog in the industry is that right yeah um roseburg lumber company was uh d built by kenneth ford mm -hmm. between i'm going to make this up a little bit but i think his first paychecks were issued during the great depression Wow. And only three grocery stores in town would cash them for about 80 cents on the dollar. Wow. Okay. And he ended up building it, Roseburg Lumber into the largest solely owned lumber business in the world. Wow. How many mills do you think were in? So let's, to put a timeline on this, let's, we want to talk about lumber and timber kind of in your lifetime. Yeah. yeah what I know about. And it. Yeah. maybe we'll start the discussion with when you were a kid and kind of growing up, you were born in, in Roseburg. Yeah. How many mills existed in the county or in town when you were a kid and, and coming of age? So so 12 to 16 years before I was born, there were 244 sawmills operating in Douglas County. They wow. were everywhere, little mills, every place, medium-sized mills, a few big mills. It was the beginning of the industrialization of West Coast softwood. Mm -hmm. And now, today, I just kind of did a rough count five minutes ago, and there are probably 12 mills operating in Douglas County. So I would guess when I was in high school, there were, might have been 30, 40 perhaps mm -hmm. because they'd gotten big and the big guys had squished the little guys. And, but they were still, there were lots and lots of mills operating. And there are empty mills everywhere mm -hmm. right now. You drive most places and you'll pass a, yeah. an empty mill. And some of them are, are almost archeological sites. I mean, old empty yeah. mills. And some of them are as recent as, you know, two years ago to where they're just being scrapped and the buildings torn down and the auction has already happened. And so yeah. it, in, at various times they've been killed. So a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with how the timber industry works, but let me, exp let me explain it as I understand it. And then you correct me mm -hmm. where it needs to be corrected. Um, loggers or forest workers or men with chainsaws loggers dig out in the woods cut the trees down load buck them to the correct length put them on a truck and bring them to the mill and sell them to the mill and the mill pays them for the logs they deliver is that is that phase one yeah it, there it used to be entirely the loggers the men with the chainsaws before that the men with the crosscut saws who would cut the trees down and get them to market mm -hmm. Now it's a lot of it is much more mechanized than that with feller bunchers and where the actual cutting of the trees and the 
and the taking the limbs off and cutting them to length happens with big equipment on the ground in moments. But there's still plenty of hand logging in that way that goes on. But you're right. The, The logger is typically an employee of a large logging concern. Sometimes it's a subsidiary of the sawmill corporation itself. Oh. Sometimes it's, it's an independent logger, a jippo logger as they're termed, oh. where all they do is log. Um, sometimes it's a landowner. You own, you know, private timber, the ranches, it, you know, down in, down in the low land, lower lands and in the coast range, there's lots of privately held timber land. Oh. And so the owner perhaps has a, a cat, a bulldozer, you know, with a blade winch canopy set up to log. And, and he, on a small basis, takes the logs off of his own property, cuts them to length, enters into a purchase agreement with a sawmill to sell his logs to a mill, and then arranges the trucking. It's hauled to the mill, and he sells as the individual. So sometimes it's a logging company logging public or private timber. Sometimes it's a landowner himself logging. And sometimes it's a branch of the lumber corporation logging their own property. And or public property sometimes, mm-hmm. and selling the logs or sawing them. So, in the case of a landowner, do they enter into an agreement to sell the the mill their logs kind of before they show up with mm-hmm. the first load? So yeah. basically, a landowner would pick a mill or maybe price out a couple yes. of different mills and mm-hmm. walk in and say, "This is what I have." How, yes. how does that work? So it, it it depends on what the market is at the moment because log. Lumber is a commodity. Logs are a commodity, and lumber is a separate commodity, actually. Log mm-hmm. prices are tied to lumber prices. Mm-hmm. Um, lumber prices are tied to the open market for lumber, and so that price trickles back down. It's like gasoline prices and crude oil prices, right? And so ranchers or people who own land kind of watch the log market and find out what prices are and try to decide when they're going to harvest and and. Typically, log prices are higher in the winter because it's hard to get logs out in the winter, and they're lower in the summer because everybody can log in the summer, so they they rise and fall seasonally. But a landowner will call a log buyer, which is the the person at the mill who's responsible for making the deals with whoever's selling the logs, and the log buyer, if it's a lot of logs, will come out and look at his stand, walk through the stand, see what percentage of what grade of logs he has, and say, we'll pay you what's known as a camp-run price, that is... All of the footage, all of the board footage that we buy from you will pay this amount per thousand. Like a flat fee. A flat fee. Or, depending on the stand and and the Mm -hmm. species, it might be a graded log sale where we'll pay you this much for uh, three peelers, this much for select mills, this much for number one mills and number two mills and select culls. And each different grade of log commands a different price. Oh, and so that deal will be made beforehand and yes. kind of agreed upon. Yes. That's the deal. And then, yeah. okay, bring your bring your logs anytime after Friday and we'll, yep. That's we'll, it. we'll pay you. That's it. There are taxes that pertain also. There's a severance tax in Oregon where the state gets a, a, a percentage of the value of the logs when they're sold. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things are determined before the trees hit the ground, ideally. Mm-hmm. And then... It's just a, it, it's a purchase order that you get with the buyer, and then the terms of that purchase order carry through until the mill decides mm-hmm. we're done paying like that. We want to renegotiate, or the property owner just says, I found a better deal or I'm done, and then that's, that deal sunsets. And if they sell again next year, they get a re-up another purchase order usually. In the case of a private landowner, and maybe it's different today than it was 40 years ago, but do you have to get a permit in order to cut your own trees down? Or yeah. can you basically just sell it kind of like it was firewood? It, it's called a cutting permit. The, the, state, the state wants to be notified. And part of the reason for that is, is because 
Doug, here in Douglas County, Douglas Forest Protective Association provides fire protection, and they have some responsibility to help put out fires if they get started. And so since they have that responsibility and that um, authority, they want to know when you're going to start logging, when you start operations. Uh-huh. And they also have the authority to make sure that you comply with fire code, fire regulations when fire season starts uh-huh. so that you're not operating in a way that's likely to set the whole county on fire. And so mm-hmm. that's all part of the process of beginning to log. So what does that what does that mean for the loggers? Like having a fire extinguisher like attached to every saw, and what, what what do they need to? Comply? Yeah, there there are a lot of regulations, and and I I can get out of my depth here a little bit because I've been pretty much just in construction for the last twenty years here. Yeah, well, maybe speak to it from when you were logging last. So in in general terms, a cutter when you're on the ground falling, you ha- in the, in fire season you have to have a little fire extinguisher fire extinguisher with you is that one behind me uh that's some version of one yeah. yeah and so a cutter will carry something about like that or even a little smaller mm-hmm. dangling from his belt in his with his other tools mm-hmm. so that if a spark from his saw or maybe he's filling his gas can and spills some gas and it gets it's on the exhaust boom he's got a fire yeah and it's in the middle of the summer when the whole world is up just a pile of tinder around here yeah he's got something he can just hit it with and put it out yeah down on the landing, the the center of operations where so the logs... D- describe the landing real quick, okay. just in terms of the lay of the land. A, a landing is a space, hopefully somewhat level, where trucks can back, either pull through or back into, where your log loader, whatever you're using to put the logs on the truck, can operate, where whatever you're using to pull the logs down, whether it's a yarder or a cat or a skidder or a processor can bring the logs to and put them in a stack. Mm-hmm. There'll be one or two guys working on the landing, you know, bumping knots and making sure they're cut to length and facilitating the loading of the truck. So sometimes a landing, particularly in this era of self-loading log trucks, sometimes a landing is nothing more than a spot alongside a road where a truck can stop. Mm-hmm. The loader is on the truck. He throws the logs essentially out of the ditch up onto his truck and goes on down the road. Uh-huh. But historically, the bigger and flatter and more open your landing is, the safer it is and the easier it is to so operate. It's, it's kind of like the home base. The, the home the, the base. The loggers are where they park their truck that That's morning right. and stuff. And the landing moves as the, as, the, as the unit, as the hillside is cleaned off, the landing moves to follow uh, the logs, so you don't have to skid them too far. Uh-huh. And so to your original question, there needs to be a fire truck or a fire trailer. And the regulations have just changed to where now in Oregon, it needs to be a truck, a self-contained unit uh-huh. that has, I think, a thousand gallons of water and uh-huh. a pump that will discharge through a minimum one inch line at a certain rate yeah. so that if a fire does start, you have a chance of knocking it down before it's a problem. So these landings are built... I. They don't exist before the loggers show up, and right. I, that's one of the first things that the cat does. I'm guessing is punch in a road and mm-hmm. figure out where should we, mm-hmm. how how close can we get our trucks mm-hmm. and and build a landing. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if you're from the area or not, but logging roads around here are a kind of a part of the topography. It's mm-hmm. these roads that are they're not forest service roads. They're not always graveled, but they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why they, they were just yep. punching them in as needed. Yep. Now, up on National Forest, on Forest Service, they're, they're, very, they're pretty sophisticated. They're graded and they're drained and they're graveled and a lot of them are locked off now. Yeah. But down in, on, in private, on private ground, they are everywhere and they're sometimes rough. But an interesting thing, that when the cutters go in to start cutting, they have their eyes open because in almost every case, 
they're not the first guys to ever cut down trees there, and it's not the first time the site's been logged. Oh. And you can generally look around and see where the skid roads were oh. and where the landings were, and then you fall the timber oriented in the right direction so that it's easy to haul, easy to pull to the skid roads, and easy to get to the landings. So okay. that layout starts really with the first guy to show up. So when these guys fall the, the trees, the next step, let's talk about it, how it was 40 years ago maybe, mm -hmm. or more, how it was most common. They mm -hmm. would fall them, and then the cat would crawl back there, mm -hmm. grab a handful of logs mm -hmm. with chokers, which mm -hmm. are cables, mm -hmm. drag them in, and then those guys would get the next group of trees knocked down, or would they knock everything down in a couple of days? And how, How's the so sequencing work? For, for um, it depends on the size of the company that's doing the work. If it's a it's a if it's a full blown lumber concern or a, a full blown uh, logging business, then the the cutters were in there weeks, days or weeks ahead of the skidding, oh. and all the trees are down. Wow. Okay. It it is it's chaos. down. It's yeah. got to just be like insane up there with all these trees down. It is. It's it's really something. Good cutters throw fall the logs in lead. That is quartering in the direction they need to go side by side by side by side by side. Mm -hmm. But there's brush and there's other junk trees, deciduous mm -hmm. trees, hardwood trees that are tangled up in the wreck. And so as the as the ground machine comes in, he's working his way in and the choker setters are having to sort of fight their way through that. On a high lead show where you're using a yarder, it's the same thing. But typically, 40 years ago when I was here, setting chokers up in the Cascades on public ground, the trees were bigger. And so the wreck was grander. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes they would stack up. You you could go out on a tree that was bridging a little ravine or something over the top of other logs, and you would be standing 20 feet off the ground mm -hmm. and setting your choker 20 feet off the ground and then running back down that log to get safe before the yarder jerked it out of there and it started heading to the landing at maybe mm -hmm. 30 miles an hour or even 40 miles an hour sometimes. So may, maybe um, explain a yarder. If the first version we described as a cat hooking up logging. you can kind of probably see the cat operator but mm -hmm. what is a yarder and what does that look like all right let me finish describing seeing the cat operator so with a ground machine a cat or a skitter is a skitter a cat uh, it's a rubber tires oh, it's uh, big rubber tires and articulating in the middle oh, um okay um off-road roll cage it's just a log getter it's that's it's, all it it's is. like a cat just with wheels instead of tracks yeah but of. the blade is little it won't push much dirt oh. about all it'll do is push dirt out of the way and scratch a corner really oh. it's and sometimes you can chain them up the tires are six or seven feet in diameter or eight feet and they're chains on them for traction and they're so fast because mm -hmm. When they get up onto good going, they can travel at speeds that a rubber tire can sustain. Wow. So they're very fast, better for smaller wood typically. Mm -hmm. But the choker setters working behind the ground machine are in constant eye contact with the with the cat skinner if well, they're is going it, is to live. Is a skinner the slang term for the operator? Yeah. A, a mule skinner used to skin mules. A cat skinner operates the cat. Well, what's the mule? Uh, sorry, I, from like Old West days. Oh, oh, oh. okay. So it, the cat skinner came from the term of being a mule skinner. Oh, okay. Oh, a, a, oh, a teamster see. was also a mule skinner, driving mules. Op, you know, okay. The person driving a team of mules yeah, was, was called a mule, a skinner. mule skinner. Yes, a and mule so skinner. The loggers picked it up and called their cat operator a cat, a cat skinner. skinner. That's cool. it. Yeah. And so the choker setter, one or two usually, um, are always in contact visually and with hand signals because you can't really yell effectively. Yeah. And there are set signals for what you want the cat to do when it gets back to get the turn. Um, that's what you call the, the, the logs that go back to the landing behind the machine is a turn of uh -huh. logs, T-U-R-N. Um, 
when I was just out of high school. So I logged with my dad. We had a D4 when I was 15, 16, 17. And then out of high school, I logged for Little River Box, um, set chokers behind cats. And usually you would have five chokers, five eighths inch diameter, 12 feet long. And for a while I was working with two sets of five chokers. So when the cat went into the landing, I had five chokers loose that I would set. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back, I would unhook the five chokers he drove back with him, get him out of the way, set the five that I hooked the five I had just set. They would go back, and Got it was it. a real workhouse. Yeah, it probably took half hour to set five chokers or more, right? It I, could take a while. Uh, ideally, it's like everything else. It can happen so quick. Uh, it can happen so yeah. quick to where five chokers could be set in in two minutes. Yeah. I mean, if the logs are right there and if you're not digging choker holes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is some strategy to setting the chokers. You don't just grab wherever you want. You set them from two to four feet from the end of the log mm-hmm. and, and, and there's quite, there's too much to it to describe. But so that's a ground machine. That's ground logging. High lead was the idea of, so 40 years ago, high lead logging had just changed from where the yarder, the series of winches and power source would be set up and and strapped down to the ground to stumps underneath a tree, an actual tree, a tall tree that had been topped, stripped of leaves, and rigged with big pulleys. And so the cables would come from the winches on the yarder up the tree, the spar pole, through the blocks, out across the unit and back, and it would set up like a clothesline where where the main line would pull the logs in, and the haul back, which went through a tail holt block out on the other side of the unit, would pull the main line and the butt rigging, which is what the chokers were attached to, back out into the unit. So that had recently changed into portable yarders, giant metal contraptions with a telescoping steel spar pole laying down on the on the carrier and all the winches and the motors as part of the carrier and they would drive up the logging roads into a uh, onto a landing the pole would be raised hydraulically stood up guy lined back to stumps scattered around a circumference like seven five to seven probably guy lines back to stumps to anchor it in place to anchor it hold it up and then the a straw line which is a five sixteenths or three eighths inch diameter cable would be pulled by hand out across the unit by the rigging crew mm-hmm. run through a block brought back and using that little light line, they would begin to pull the heavy lines out across the mm. unit and rig up the road, it was called. The road was the strip that was logged by the yarder and pull all of the logs in that road back to the landing, drop them off. Wow. The man working on the landing was called a chaser. He was standing there and as soon as the yarder would bring the logs in and boom, drop them to the ground, he would run out there, and I do mean run, and unhook the chokers. He would chase the turn, unhook the chokers and then run for his life. The yarder would jerk the chokers back out of that mess of logs and send them back across the landing at high speeds to the crew out in the brush. And all of those commands were communicated with a, what was called a talkie tutor, which was a radio um, device whereby, by palming uh, kind of a paddle switch, you could cause a whistle to blow on the yarder. Mm. And there was a series of signals. Um, Three signals was uh, go ahead, go ahead. One beep and then two short ones meant I think slide the hull back back. I, I don't I don't remember because I was never the rigging slinger, but that's mm-hmm. how the communication happened. And that was a loud whistle you could hear for miles, right? For miles, it would echo for miles. I, I remember hearing those in places as a kid and just thinking, 
God, that thing's loud. <laughs> that is so annoying. <laughs> What's going on up there? Yeah. Um, so clearly this is dangerous. And I know it used to be, I'm sure it is still, if not the most dangerous job right up there right among up there. the most. And the danger comes from people getting crushed by logs. Crushed by logs, hit by falling rocks that are dislodged as the yeah. cable goes up the hill, killed by cables breaking and falling. Um, think of this clothesline effect of these super heavy, like a two-inch diameter main line and an inch and an eighth diameter haulback. I don't know, pick a number, maybe maybe eight or 900 or 2,000 feet of it hung up in the air from the machine out, not 2,000 feet, but a long ways. Yeah. And it's up there maybe 150 or 200 feet. Yeah. And and when the when the yarder slacks the lines, yeah. it comes down, whop, onto the ground, all 900 feet of it. Yeah. And if the choker setter forgot that he was standing under the haulback, yeah. he's simply dead. Yeah. He is simply instantly dead. So there were lots of ways mm. to get killed. There's going to be there's just so much more we could talk about there, but I want to move through the big picture here and then we can uh yeah, circle back later if people have specific interests in, Re- in this. Remind me about a dirty trick you could play on somebody relative to the haulback. I don't think I'd want any part of any dirty trick around logging. It sounds like a- Well, let me just tell you what it was. So you're all wearing metal hard hats, right? Yeah. And everybody's trying to remember where the haulback is cuz sometimes it's right alongside the main line and sometimes it's clear over here going to where you could run away out of the danger zone from the yarding of the logs and stop right under the haulback which is clear over your head and not remember, oh. okay? And so someone who has a mean streak would pick up a branch and standing behind you would yell haul back and then hit your hard hat with the with the stick whack and right then you would get this charge of electricity and adrenaline through your body because you knew you'd just been smashed and instead you just had to start fighting because it was such a dirty trick yeah that's that's beyond a dirty trick around here loggers make a career out of logging and i'm guessing in a similar way where people in other states would spend a career in an oil field or or, fishing or or fishing or in a mine yeah and well, if there was a general career path, I'm guessing a guy would start kind of setting chokers. And then what are some of the other roles that the more experienced and the guys who've been around would, would, you know, fall to later in their, later okay. in their career? Or what, I guess the question is what, what does a career look like for a typical logger work for 10 years and then get smashed? <laughs> and that's it. So it's a lot safer now, you know, like, like so many other things, partially because of the automation. Yeah. Um, and partially because we just don't accept high school kids getting killed five or eight or 10 at a time each summer, you know, thankfully, thankfully, (laughs) thankfully that was kind of the progression. You would go from a choker setter to a rigging slinger who was the guy running the controls Mm -hmm. and, and laying out the roads, what stumps would be used for tail holts. And you would kind of boss that. And then you would move in onto the landing and maybe run the loader. And then maybe you would run the yarder and then you would become a side rod and maybe run a couple of different, landings and then a hook tender and that was that was about it in the field but if you didn't have the political savvy or the intelligence to do that and it did take intelligence Mm -hmm. when your body started breaking down you might just get into the seat of a truck and be a truck driver Mm -hmm. not a bad gig Um, my dad moved out of the woods into a sawmill of an ear plant because the woods were uh, it just wasn't working as it with a young growing family and he could work in a sawmill um was a, another sort of a lateral move. If you if you could arrange it, you like to try to get trained as a cutter because the fallers, the cutters, just made more money. They were also mm. referred to as bushlers because for a long time they would be paid according to the volume of wood they put on the ground. 
the board feet. And mm -hmm. they would keep a little log book with them. Each log that they fell and bucked, they would check the diameter and the length and they would write it in their tally, tally book. And at the end of the day, they would know how much wood they'd put on the ground and thus how much money they made. And they made a ton of money. Mm -hmm. But they usually only worked six hours because you would exhaust yourself. And mm -hmm. once you got tired, you'd get killed. Yeah. And frankly, they usually made about two days wages in six hours. Wow. So that was a pretty good path. So it was easy for cutters to get to be more entrepreneurial because if you were a good cutter and you understood it, maybe you could get get a mill owner to trust you to make the agreement with you directly and you would hire a couple cutters and be put, you know, so you yeah. could, that step. It was hard to put together the capital to buy equipment to become a logger. You know, maybe you could buy a truck or maybe you could buy a cat. And so it was a matter of coming up with the capital to, to get into an ownership position on the machines you needed. But as a cutter, you could do it with some saws and, That's it. A, and pickup, a pickup truck. A pickup and three or four chainsaws, and you were in business. And even if you were expensive, you paid for yourself by doing a good job. If the trees were felled in a yep. way that was easy to yard in, it was probably well worth the money That's right. to pay you extra to have it done right. That's right. And if, if you weren't breaking trees apart on stumps yeah. you get them in the right spot so you aren't getting a lot of loss for that and mm -hmm. if your diameters were right and there's a whole sophisticated uh, game about the volume of the of the log and i don't know how interesting this is but the volume of a log is paid based on the diameter at the small end projected to the length of the log hmm. that's a scaling diameter the scaling cylinder so the taper everything that grows towards as the log gets bigger towards the bottom the sawmill gets for free because wow. they're only paying for the scaling cylinder. Interesting. And so there's a continual trade-off between judging where to cut the log length to try yeah. to minimize what's lost in taper. So there, there's, there is a lot to it, like everything else. Now, you mentioned, um, speaking about the evolution of the technology around logging, um, mm -hmm. we understand the logging with a cat and a yarder, and you mentioned a feller buncher and some of these sort of I don't know how new they are, but a lot of the modern logging equipment I've seen, it looks like it's the only way to go. It crawls in, it cuts it. It's like an excavator yeah. with this super dynamic, reticulating, saw incorporating, limb cutting off. Is that is that a feller buncher? That, that is. As, so full disclosure, I've never worked around a feller buncher. Okay, that, that came in just as I stepped out. Mm -hmm. But there are feller bunchers and forwarders. And the feller buncher, as I understand it, does just what you said. Grabs a tree, cuts it off, rotates a tree, and it, the tree is pulled through this articulating yeah. head, and it bumps all the limbs off, and it automatically stops when the right distance is has gone through and cuts it all without letting go of the without log. setting it down. That's right. So you can then set it in a stack. Yep. So Clean you, and ready to so go. So the first log will drop off and the second log will drop off and maybe the third one's still in the head. And then they can swing around and put those in little bundles. You know, as they mm -hmm. work their way through the stand, they're creating oh. little mini stacks. Yeah. So that's a feller buncher. And then a forwarder is this, it's like a skidder that we were talking about. It can go yeah. anywhere and it's got a little log trailer on the back yeah. and a little loader on the front. And it drives right up into the woods and gets to those mini stacks and throws them on this cart yeah. and drives back down to the landing and throws them off. And the choker setters are out of business. Yeah. And, and what an amazing advancement in technology in terms of safety. Because yeah. now you have fellers yep. who are yep. not getting crushed, mm -hmm. choker setters, hook yep. slingers, all those guys around yep. the yarder. It's just all of a sudden... 
the most dangerous parts are happening from inside of a cab of a piece of equipment. You're in enclosed with steel tubing and big heavy screen and bulletproof yeah. glass. And if you don't roll the machine down to the bottom of the canyon, you yeah. are almost always going to go home at the end of the day. Yeah, man, these heavy equipment is it's just so underrated, at least by the mm -hmm. common man in terms of it, it's technology. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's greasy and rough and ugly and rusty, but that is the most beautiful technology that lowers the price of lumber, saves lives. Yeah. Yeah. Reduces the cost for a landowner. Let's say they want to log their property. What, what, what would a landowner have to pay in terms of the cost to Great get question. the money out of their stand of trees? Great question. It was often done on a share basis. When dad and I went, when I moved back here, bought in with dad logging, came back from Las Vegas, tired of construction. We were logging for 40%. Whatever, whatever came from the mill, 40% of it divided by the mill uh -huh. went to us and 60% went to the landowner. Got it. Now, that's, a, that's a sizable chunk of money. So when a logger comes along that has a feller buncher and a processor, a feller buncher and a forwarder, and it's just two guys doing this and they get maybe, I don't know, seven or eight times as much work done in a day. Yeah. Boom. They could do it for a much a, a lower, a lower price. Yeah. Which either a leaves more money for the landowner or B enables a sawmill to push down the number they're, they're paying for the logs. Yeah. Which Theoret in theory, at least, eventually means the boards you buy at Home Depot or wherever you buy them are going to cost you less money. Yeah. Uh, talk for a little minute about how people make big money in timber. In other words, if you're just cutting trees, you can only, even if you're the best, you can only cut so many in a day. That's right. And if you're a small logging shop, it's kind of the same thing. You're limited by labor. So where where is the big money in timber made? So first of all, I'm really not qualified to answer that because I never made any big money in, in logging. But I've known a few loggers, and I, the only people I've ever known that made any real money ended up in a position where they were buying and selling the commodity oh. rather than doing the work. Putting the deals together. Putting the deals together. But there are some people around here who just by dint of sheer grit built little logging companies up that made some real money. Mm -hmm. Made some, they, they, I mean, at least as measured by the amount of equipment in the yard and the amount of work they did and the amount of, you know, there are some log trucking firms here, Ireland and Gene Whitaker, big fleets of trucks. Mm -hmm. They've been iconic on the roads around here for decades. Yeah. Um, some logging companies the same way. Kenneth Ford that I mentioned earlier, but he, he wrapped his arms around the whole thing and pretty soon was buying large tracts of land and... And so, all so of he that. would buy land. He owned the mill. He had logging crews, I guess, who would go yep. in, and it was all under his umbrella. That's where he ended up. But to begin with, he was one of the 243 mills operating in Douglas oh. County. Oh, I, you I, know, I, small, I missed that part. Small. Okay. Um, so, so it's just like everything else. It is the money and the capital that facilitates stepping out of a of a blue collar. Yeah. Um, a blue collar life. Yeah. But that comes with its own set of pluses and minuses you know yeah. well think about the it's like any business let's say a painting business but mm -hmm. it might sound nice to have like i got 800 painting crews out or 80 <laughs> yeah but yeah. you know how many headaches come oh. with let's say 80 log trucks oh, I, I can't even imagine you know how many oh. tires that are that you're maintaining you got to have <laughs> yeah. like 10 big yeah. o tires just yeah. to keep you going that's right how often are, are you blowing a head gasket on a loaded log truck on a steep grade yeah. somewhere and how in the world do you get that thing safely to where you can even work on it yeah there, there's probably just I'm, I'm sure if we had a the owner of one of these companies, they'd be kind of like, well, it's not 
It's there's money, but it's not easy. Yeah, you know, it's that it's the rule. There is no easy yeah. money. You know, but the de- putting the deal together. So, for example, I could imagine like a I don't know. I'm sure there's brokers brokers in some extent with timber, but buying a piece of land that has timber on it oh, for man. one price, selling it for the appropriate price, mm-hmm. taking yep. the value of the timber, or maybe removing the timber, selling it. I, I'm sure there's money in that sort of so, transition. So there's an example of a way that people like us yeah. sometimes hit real long balls with timber, and that is finding a ranch with timber on it where the timber is undervalued, yeah. real estate being an imperfect market, buying the ranch, harvesting the trees, getting the value out of the trees, still having the value of the land. All of a sudden, a working man gets yeah. a leg up, yeah. you know, gets a leg up. And I know I've got a good friend, Bjorn Vianne, who who did did that several times and it just, and then he was smart. He was smart and he was conservative and Bjorn has done so well in this way. That's cool. The the log buyers, the guys that work for the mills are buying the logs, buying the tracts are in a position to really be able to capitalize on this. Pretty soon they really learn values. Yeah. Good point. And they see the deals and, and those guys, those guys make money. They are disparagingly referred to by the men on the ground as, timber maggots yeah okay but we're, we're always jealous of the people that make more money than we do yeah right? it's like the it's like the real estate broker doing the six million dollar beverly hills home and making you know one percent yeah yeah, <laughs> like yeah that's yeah must be nice must be nice <laughs> to just close the deal all right let's talk let's kind of close and talk about the timber itself now around mm-hmm. here it's Douglas fir that I know of that's like the big commodity. Is that it? Or is the Northwest growing lots of different types of lumber that I just don't hear about? That's a, that's a good question. Um, and the second part of that is what the reality is. Douglas fir is a dominant species. And I can't tell you exactly why. But it, it does change with elevation. And whether it's north aspect, that is a north-facing slope or a south-facing slope, mm-hmm. soil types, but we have several different kinds of pine trees here, ponderosa pine, white pine, sugar pine. Um, I just got to the end of my expertise on pine. We have white wood that is grand fir, white fir, lodgepole pine. There I thought of another pine. Pine we, saw. Pine saw. Pine saw is a big commodity. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the, several kinds of cedar, incense cedar, western red cedar, my all-time favorite wood. Let me just throw that down. I love western red cedar. A little closer to the coast, we have Port Orford cedar. There's an Alaskan yellow cedar. What am I forgetting? So all those things kind of coexist, each in their own sort of part of the Got it. geography around here. Mm-hmm. One of the objections of the environmentalist movement is that when we log and replant, and by the way, we do replant, there are more trees by number growing in the United States now than there were when the pilgrims got here. Um, But they object to what is termed a monoculture. Well, okay. Hold on. Environmentalists object to replanting primarily one species of tree. Is that that they they say we're creating plantations, tree plantations, monoculture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind of. Fair enough, except I've spent quite a lot of time hunting around here and on ground that was not replanted by humans. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be monocultures in different areas. Yeah. You know, the different soils, different, like I said, those oh, different right. circumstances promote and are dominated by one particular species of a conifer. Down along the creek, you'll tend to see more hemlock and white mm-hmm. fir, those kinds of things, red cedar. And it's the same when you replant it. So first of all, we can't log down to the creeks anymore. And that's a good thing. 
So those riparian zones have the species that are happy with their feet wet all the time, and that's not Douglas fir. And plus, I'm, I'm sure if you cut those out, the, the creek loses some sort of stability in the soil yeah. and goes all the heck. It's a big problem. Yeah. It's a big problem. And that alone is responsible for a lot of the degradation of watersheds. Mm-hmm. When my dad stepped into logging in, it's probably 53, the Forest Service was specifying that they yard all of the trees out of the creeks. Get them out of the creeks, boys. We don't want the wood in the creek. Huh. And now the Department of Fish and Wildlife pays people good money to take logs with the root wads still attached and place them in stream beds to create opportunities for water to dam up and to create shade and interrupt stream flow. So as our knowledge has increased, logging practices have Mm. changed. But Mm. I, I I I don't share the objection to monoculture because Mother Nature is going to seed what she wants to seed. There will be trees that come in that inhabit the mid story, the vine maple and the alders along the creeks, those things. This country, it doesn't matter what we do. It's going to grow trees. Yeah. It's the best tree-growing location in the world. Yeah. So in, in terms of the logging, if I'm sure that's part of the deal that gets penciled out beforehand. Like these trees are going to go here to this mill, yes. those trees. We don't. We won't take them anyways. So it, that, it, that gets all sorted out in the negotiations. If it's, there's a- it's that, that it is sorted on the landing and sent to different mills, which happens. Big logs go to the few remaining mills that saw big logs. Small logs go to... The, Culls go to a pulpwood mill, mm-hmm. or sometimes the camp run price means everything goes to one buyer, and then the mill sorts oh, okay. and retrucks yeah. to the other places. That makes sense. That if there's here. only a couple trees, yeah. then small percentage. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that homeowners or people might wait till the winter to log because they can sell them for more. Mm-hmm. So what what happens to the log themselves? Do they have to get sawn up kind of right away, or could they be fallen in you know in the summer and then sold in the winter, and it's no different for the mill? So that's that's an important question, and. That's one of the things that we ran into last winter when we had that big snowmageddon event here. And yeah. millions of trees went to the ground in Douglas County. And they went to the ground in places where the people weren't equipped to get them out or it wasn't economically viable to go in and get them out or they weren't pulled out for a year later. And they do degrade. Mm-hmm. Bugs lay eggs in the bark. The bugs, the, the egg hatches. The larva mills its way down into the tree. First, it goes around up between the bark and the cambium layer precambium yeah and eventually we'll we'll drill right in and the the logs wrecked it is wrecked for commercial application if you log them and buck them to length and put them in a stack and let them dry out the checks the drying checks go in from the end and you lose scale you lose value so there's a there is i'll say and people can straighten me out if i'm wrong but once that tree's on the ground and bucked to length and in a stack you better get it to market within like three weeks, hmm. or you're going to start taking some dock, some cut. And that's determined by the scaler. We didn't even talk about the third party that stands between the seller of the log and the buyer of the log to determine the value of the log. Yeah. Someone who does not have that profit motive as- associated with that, oh. the quality and the quantity designation. Scaling Bureau determines how many board feet came in on the truck, what the species, what the grade what the value there's a whole very sophisticated protocol of deductions that are made for number of knots pitch rings um spec or conch which is a defect uh any number of things can add up to uh characteristics of the log that means the logger does not get paid for as many board feet that's, that's or at a lower you, rate. You mentioned checks. So if the end of the board has big checks or kind of cracks yep. starting around, the yep. scaler would look at that and yep. mark down the value. He would cut off a foot or two oh. foot off the length 
Okay. So when you're calculating the volume in that scaling cylinder. Oh. Or if there's giant knot clusters, um, it would drop the grade of the log, even though it's big enough to make a certain grade, mm. the knot clusters would reduce it to a grade that is paid at a lower rate, unless you have a camp run price, and then oh. the whole volume is paid at that set price. So it's it's pretty pretty tricky. Hey, um, maybe we'll end. Talk about these. I don't. They're not new now, but I remember when I was a kid on the way to Glide, there was a stand of trees that they planted with the initials KMX oh. on the side of the hill. In fact, everybody always said that. I can never see it. I think they had always got. They had already gotten big enough. But I understood that that was some sort of genetically modified tree that was supposed to grow faster and be better. It, is there a genetically modified tree that surpasses Doug fir? Thanks for bringing that up. That was planted on a hillside that belonged to Bud Updegrave. He was a he was like Kenneth Ford in terms of larger than life, a guy who started out as a logger and did good, ended up with rant. He did good. He was uh, a remarkable man. And the KMX tree was a hybrid that was developed uh, I don't know from where, but it was a cross. KMX, I think, meant a hybrid between a knob cone pine and a Monterey pine. KMX, cross. And it was touted as a solution to the world's need for pulp, for paper. Oh. Grew so fast, soft wood, shoots up, makes wood quicker than any other species, high-grade chips, high-grade paper. Huh. So, but up to grave, being a smart man, planted, I don't know, two or 300 acres of, in KMX right alongside the highway. And then he planted about 30 acres in plain old garden variety Douglas fir, just right on the same hillside. Yeah. And we have watched now for the last 50 years as those KMX trees around here would get up to a certain size and then just mysteriously begin to die. Oh. And they would come up and they would be all big branches, wolfy, it's called right here. You oh. call a tree that is all branches a grouse ladder or a wolfy <laughs> yeah. tree, okay? And those KMX trees, they were logged essentially about every five or six years because they were dying off, and none of them yeah. ever got to anything significant. And in the meantime, that 30 acres of Douglas fir is just going straight up, reaching for the light, competing with each other. The ones that don't win the race for the light die, leaving space for the trees that live to get bigger and stronger. But in the competition, the lower branches die and fall off, so you get these clear gun barrel stems, mm -hmm. a highly machinable and so it's just been a testament to the and fact they do that grow fast. they grow fast in the right setting and they grow good and they grow straight yeah. and it's just a testament to the fact that god planted the right wood in this part of the world if you if you need mm -hmm. boards for people to live in yeah and that's that's worldwide i think yeah. everywhere in the world that's it's the there's no better lumber growing somewhere else that that we wish we had access to that's like, this right is it. that's it now it's interesting on the other side of the pacific um you know russia um Japan, northern Japan, yeah, but, but they Russia, have. they have Douglas fir over there thriving in exactly the same way oh. that we have over here on the West Coast. I in fact, from a certain perspective, someday they are going to finish putting Oregon out of the wood business because oh. the wood over there is like it was here in 1945. Why, why is that? Just hasn't been logged as the, much? The infrastructure didn't go in to log it. The winters are so cold that they, they only haul, oh. they haul, as I understand it, they haul their logs out in the winter on the frozen rivers, oh. and they haven't had the disposable income to punch the roads in like we have here. Wow. So I, anyway, I, I expect that eventually we'll see a lot of that Douglas fir from the other side of the Pacific coming to market somewhere. All right. Well, we're going to wrap that up. There's, there's quite a bit here that I don't know, and I'm sure we could have more of this conversation. So if this was uh, interesting, please let us know in the comments on YouTube. We really appreciate everybody um, watching this channel. Of course, our main channel, but we're trying to 
grow this part of our um, of our business here because I don't know things are changing and our spec house is going to be done pretty soon at, well at some point and we're looking to make more of this type of content get some more interesting people here I'd like to have a similar conversation with someone who knows a lot about uh, oil fields yeah no kidding I, that's I've been on a couple I've I drove through Farmington New Mexico years ago and I remember seeing oil pumps everywhere and just thinking like wow and I met a lot of people in that town who um, you know, blue collar people and everyone like, well, oh, we work in the oil field. Anyways, yep, probably kind of like here, everybody works Same. in the forest. Same. So it'd be fun to have a, a conversation with a person like that. Maybe somebody from a mining town also. Mm -hmm. So uh, any other comments on logging or timber you want to leave the uh, listeners with? I, I, maybe just this, that um, when I left Las Vegas after eight years in a high production construction environment where you had to be careful and never make a mistake and don't break anything and, and, don't you know where you were assembling and it had to be assembled right it was such a relief to come up here buy in with dad and start logging for a while where you were paid to tear the world apart yeah where the faster you ran and the, and the more leverage you could use it was great but but every time i would walk into a little draw somewhere and sword ferns up to my waist and and these beautiful trees that were just standing there doing their good work a logger is not um blind to the fact that he is devastating something beautiful yeah okay? but the comfort always came when as i was working in there devastating those forest glades i would realize that i was making the second or third in some cases set of stumps that there were stumps in there that had been created by other men harvesting the fiber that other people had lived their lives in and had had um been paid to produce and who had depended on the fiber for for comfort and yet that little glade and that little draw had come back it had regenerated it was back and it is a comfort to know that till the end of time when a logger goes in and does his work and leaves and it is honorable work mother nature whatever she consists of in your worldview is going to put that mess back together and set it right and beauty will emerge again. Yeah, we really didn't get into the environmental aspect, but that's the, a lot of those mills have shut down because it's difficult to log now mm -hmm. because of environmental regulations and mm -hmm. and such. So we gotta touch on that next time, but. Maybe bring an expert in for that. Yeah, it's also beautiful. They, like I said, you, they replant like crazy and you can just drive up the hill right here into an area of, I don't know how old they are, but trees 10 feet tall and it's pretty neat. They're bang, it's like bang. packed full of trees. They're and birds and rabbits in it and um and they're consuming co2 and giving off oxygen just as fast as they can yeah yeah so i think it'd be neat for people who are maybe from a different part of the country to if they're ever in this area just get off the road and just drive up there and, and you'll be amazed you look out and see like oh my gosh there that was cut recently that looks older yeah. there's some huge trees it looks it's, it's kind of neat all right well thanks for tuning in and we will catch you all next time